0: for joining us dear listeners we are here with sky gilbert he is a canadian writer actor professor and drag performer he teaches creative writing and theater studies at the university of guelph so thank you so much for being here
1: glad
2: to be here
0: you have been an out gay writer and activist in Toronto for nearly 40 years. So much has changed in that time. So I wanted to ask you, what was it like being a gay man that long ago? And how has that changed over time?
1: Well, let's see. I came out in 1981. I came out very late when I was about 29, late in life when I was about 29. And um, it was, um, you know, gay liberation. had happened about 11 or 12 years ago in 1970. So it was all there and it was just waiting for me, but unfortunately that was also the same year when um, AIDS was sort of appeared. So, mm-hmm. you know, on the one hand it was great and I got a little taste of gay liberation, but then I also, and gay liberation really meant, you know, celebrating sex. So it wasn't just about sexuality, it was about sex, it was about sexual liberation also. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a little bit of that and, and then um, suddenly I'm plunged into uh, AIDS and, So that was basically what it was like. I would say that um, I think that to to say, oh, we've come a long way, baby, I would say in terms of civil rights, yes. In terms of who we are and how we feel about ourselves, no.
0: That's a very interesting distinction you make. First of all, you said um, it was about it wasn't just about sex, it was about sexuality, or it might have been the other way no, around. No, it was the other way around, yeah. <laughs> so what's the, what's the difference between those well, two? Well, sexuality
1: three? would be, well, could be gender and sex, of course, because being gay is, has to do with gender because you're a male or female and attracted to your own sex, and it also has to do with sex because you're having sex with those people. Anyway, so it's both, but sex is just sex. Sex is the, is the act of sex. So mm-hmm. we weren't just concerned with sexuality, we were concerned with um, uh, liberating people around um, sex, sex, around uh, being sexual, celebrating having sex and kink and promiscuity and um, not being judgmental about sex trade work and all that other stuff.
0: Is that where you see the, the like, division coming from in terms of civil rights have improved, but then maybe the culture isn't so great anymore? Yeah,
1: exactly. That's part of it. I would say yes, for sure. You can get married, but um, when it comes to celebrating, exploring, being happy with our sex lives and being sexual people, no. In fact, that's probably gotten worse because it was in 1981, it was on the verge of, you know, before AIDS is what I'm trying to say. It was on the verge of gay men coming to terms with, and it would take a very long time. To get rid of the scars, because there was a huge amount of homophobia that happened in North America in the late seventies, with like, um, oh, what's her name, the Orange Juice Lady. Um, anyway, uh, this woman who was an anti- led an anti-gay campaign. She was the Orange Juice Lady. <laughs> All her name the will come, come to me. Orange Juice
2: Lady. Yeah,
1: she sold <laughs> orange juice and also held uh, homophobia. But um, <laughs>
2: homophobia so, so a that sign was, of there was a lot juice. of homophobia
1: <laughs> at the end of the nineteen seventies. So even though the seventies, you had gay liberation and you had disco and you had disco drugs and you had fire island and you had all these amazing things in north america for gay men um you you didn't have uh suddenly you had also repressive very homophobic stuff at the same time but suddenly you were plunged into this thing where you you felt um really bad about yourself because people during aids were saying it's your fault you know you it's because you're gay
0: Mm. And what is it like now, like when you say culturally, it's not all peachy keen. So what are some of those difficulties? Well, I mean,
1: I would say, and I, I think you're asking about the difference between um, civil rights and personal sexuality. Uh-huh. And I would say that the problem is that people think that civil rights uh, helps. And it does. Sorry, it, it does help a little bit. <laughs> but what they imagine is it solves all, all the problems. In other words, if you can get married, then you're fine. You know, it's like you have a TV show, mm-hmm. gay TV show, you've got Ellen, you know, degenerate. Great. Everything's solved. Right. Well, no, actually not. That's not the way it works. The self-hatred is still enormous and it's still there. And I would say what's happened is, is that um, AIDS was really the cause of gay marriage. If you look at something like uh, um the play by um, Normal Heart by Larry uh, Kramer, you will find that it ends with gay marriage. It's a play about AIDS. And at the end, the two, the man is deathbed, the man on deathbed marries his partner. And the theme of that, because this was Kramer's notion, was that um, <clears throat> there's not enough love in gay men's lives. There's too much sex and not enough love. And I would agree that there's not enough, that that's probably true of, um, there's not enough love in everybody's life. And there may well have been too much sex in gay men, uh, not too much sex, but there may have been an overbalance. But um, this whole notion that gay marriage would solve everything, and that all we had to do was sort of learn to love each other, um, is kind of, I think, a very simplistic and in, in Kramer's hands, for instance, anti-sexual notion. So what happened was is that you ended up with gay men. You also had to recognize the um, uh, respectability factor. So it's all about be assimilating and being respectable. So suddenly there's AIDS. You're being told that you're a pariah. You're being told that you're promiscuous. You're slutty. You deserve to die. So if you get married, you won't. You won't die. You'll be safe. That, that that's what happened to gay men most gay men in their heads right mm-hmm. they went well if I, i'm monogamous for the rest of their life which is not possible for most people to be monogamous with one person for your whole life straight people or gay people but they're saying to themselves well if i was just with one person for my whole life i would not die of aids and not be a pariah not be a bad person so you have this incredible respectability factor and of course, as we know now, I, well, I just think we live in a world of illusion, especially lately. So it's all about the way you think about yourself. Trump, Trump has taught us that, you know, it, it, we don't care who Trump is. People care how he presents it. He's, he's a hero. He's the guy. He's macho. He's whatever he is, um, you know, that he's portrayed about himself. So with gay men, it's like, we're going to get married. We're going to be respectable citizens. And then suddenly, of course... You get these apps that come along, and all the gay men are on the apps and they're all cheating on their <laughs> boyfriends on the apps. And they're all doing <laughs> drugs with their boyfriends in the app. So it's like with their non-boyfriends, sorry, with your sexual boyfriends uh-huh. or whatever. So yeah, so it, it's this huge state of hypocrisy. What I like to say is that we have arrived at we, we had hoped in the '70s that we would be different than straight people, and that we had a culture which was more honest and had something to offer in terms of being honest about sexual sex and sexuality. Yeah. But instead, what happened is that we've become straight people. We've become hypocrites.
0: You're like Pete Buttigieg and you're Ellen type.
1: Yeah, poor Buttigieg, poor Ellen. <laughs> by the- Does anybody care about them anymore? <laughs> I mean, no, of course, this has always happened. Like in the, in the 60s, you had all these very nice fags and dykes walking around, the, the, the dykes wore dresses, the fags wore suits, and they carried signs saying, it's very important for us to be parts of society. And they were Republicans and they, and they went for years between, they kicked Harry Hay, who is the radical communist fairy who founded the first gay liberation movement, the male one at any rate, but it included women too, in the States. So they kicked him out because he was too radical, Harry hey. And they started to say, you know, we're like everyone else. We're respectable people. This one for years, the 50s through the 60s. It wasn't until 1969 when all those whores and fags, and there are probably a couple of trans people too, but, uh, but there are fags and whores for sure, um, stood up against the police at Stonewall and threw rocks at the police. It wasn't until that happened that... Um, um, that things changed until the people on the street, the sexual people, the dry queens, the, the sex trade workers, the gay men with their kinky hats and leather. When those people finally stood up um, to the police, then things changed and they led the movement at the beginning, which was really exciting. So what I'm saying is, is that assimilation doesn't work. You can't make straight people who are conservative or religious right, or whatever think that you're a nice person because you wear a suit and you get married. They know what you do to bet in bed. They know what you're up to. It haunts them in their dreams and and becomes a nightmare for them.
0: (laughs) So tell us about your experiences in the community. Um, You've written about some difficult experiences you've had where it seems almost like uh, confrontational.
1: Well, you might have to be more specific. You don't want to hurt my feelings. What are you talking (laughs) about specifically? Because I've met a lot of situations like that.
0: Uh, Yeah, I'm trying to lump them all together. But for example, your experiences at the Vancouver Symposium on Queer yes. Theatre.
1: Well, you did so much research on me. I can't believe it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was kicked out of the, uh, of that. So I went there with all the best intentions because it was for per- queer perform, basically performing arts or something like that, or queers in performance. Or- and um, I'm both an academic somewhat and a queer performer and, and creator. And so I thought, this is great. And I went there. I knew a lot of people there. Um, But when I got there, I realized, gradually began to realize, like, for instance, I prepared a play with Sarah Stanley, who's a a lesbian uh, writer and director, and we had prepared a play and Evelyn Perry, who is a lesbian director, was going to help us. And it was a little play about growing old and being uh, queer. And Sarah and I were just gonna sit and talk about the end old queers basically. We were gonna do that at the, as a performance at the, at the festival. And I realized after a couple of days of people being very nasty to me, like people obviously objecting to things I said and just the sense that the young were of a different mindset completely that nobody wanted to hear from the old queers. So I suggested that we just cancel our performance and Sarah and Evelyn understood and they were fine. They got the same vibe. And then it's a very long story, but Evelyn organized this, her favorite thing, a kind of a group hug, kind of a group, uh, let's get together and talk about everybody's hurt, because there'd been hurtful statements of which I was obviously thought of as someone who'd made them. So it was sort of a, an, an organized uh, making up, Sky makes up, Sky apologizes, though I didn't really apologize, everybody's nice to everybody kind of thing. And so we did that, and it was kind of boring, except one woman stood up. <laughs> oh boy she was crazy and said she wanted to have sex with me which was very scary and then, met a, and then I met her in a bar afterwards and she was really mad at me because I didn't want to have sex with her and that was crazy. and I said like such woman, a healing she's a straight woman I knew from like thousands of years ago but she was just very drunk and nuts. so that was the scariest part of that conference at that point but it got scarier because what was happening to give you an idea of what was happening with me and the conference was basically I was a drag queen and every time I talked about being a drag queen there would be trans people who would one person particularly they uh, excuse me drove me crazy but they would stand up and say like very politically correct things about trans theory that I disagreed with and kind of shame me for being a drag queen like um, tell me how horrible drag queens were and how hurtful they were and so when I was bluntly I didn't get angry I don't think I might have a little bit, but I was bluntly not agreeing. And that got me in trouble. So I became a kind of pariah. And then there was finally a final day um, when I was supposed to be on a panel of me and a bunch of young, mainly younger people. And um, they kicked me off. <laughs> and I went there to attend the panel. And of course, my email wasn't working properly. And they forgot they didn't get me an email. And so... You know, I went there to go to the door and I was like barred from the door and I had to get on a plane and leave. So that was very depressing. But I would say in terms of the general experience, I felt for the first time how separate I was from my own community. Like, Uh you know, I left buddies in 1998 or seven and I moved to Hamilton, which has almost no gay community, though I'm very close to Toronto. And um, I but one of the reasons I did that was because I realized that the the assimilationism in the gay community. And to some extent, the lesbian community was getting so fierce and horrifying that I had to get out of it. Like, I just didn't. They didn't like me. I was this slutty drag queen. They didn't run into that. Right. They're into getting married. So I had that distance. But then when I went to this conference, like another a long time after that was over 16 years or longer after. I suddenly realized this next generation of queers also <laughs> rejects me even more. Like I'm totally different from them in, in the trans movement. A lot, I, I have no problem with trans people on a one-on-one, but trans theory, I have lots of arguments with and trans theory is kind of insane on many levels, I think. And um, yeah, that's gotten me into a lot of
0: trouble. Um, you mentioned drag. Um, can mm-hmm. you tell us about being a drag performer and what even is drag? Cause I feel like it's really, popular right now in a, in a way. It's super trendy. And I'm not sure if people even kind of know what it is or like it's history. Well, there's like a
1: commercial. There's a commercial on TV now where where some little girls doing, have you seen it? It's on CNN, so you wouldn't see it probably, but some little girls doing calisthenics in a gym or doing gymnastics. And then it's really homophobic in my view. And then this drag queen comes beside her. It's really a guy with a an effeminate guy with a beard. So I don't think <laughs> in my view he doesn't quite count as a drag queen, but and he's doing gymnastics and he's being all catty and campy with her. So this is an example. Like, you know, you look at it and you go, why is this little girl having a chat with this catty drag queen? Uh-huh. Now
2: Wait, what is the what commercial I'm, for?
1: Uh, you know, I can't remember. Yeah, back you can't even before. remember no because idea. of the content. I was so <laughs> shocked by this because you never see a feminine gay man on television, except, you know, on RuPaul or something. And suddenly there's this. Um, but the reason why I kind of object is I, I'm not saying that drag queens should not be seen or heard or hidden from children. Um, But drag isn't for children. Drag is sexual. It's obscene. Mm -hmm. It's about, um, it's for bars where children don't go. Mm -hmm. That's where drag started. That's what drags perform. I mean, there was cross-dressing, yes, in theater and various things. But you have to remember theater, if you're talking about cross-dressing in theater, theater has always been associated with bacchanalia, with drunkenness, with drugs and murder. I mean, go all the way back to um, The Bacchae, which is about a bunch of women who, yeah, and Dionysus who get this man in a dress and start dancing with him and kill him so it's like <laughs> it's for let like, just to think that cross-dressing was innocent once and it suddenly became crazy and dirty and obscene and maybe slightly dangerous is not true it's always been that way but yes there's been a tradition of uh, trans- uh, cross-dressing in theater and stuff that isn't like that but in- in the gay community, which is where what drag is, it's not cross-dressing, it's drag, which is a gay thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sexual and it's obscene, and it's about rebellion and camp and dirty jokes and the whole thing. So um, that's nothing to do with children. It's sexual, right? Children, if they're under 12, they shouldn't be dressing up with fake tits and putting all this lipstick on and making dirty jokes. I mean, well, they can do whatever they want, basically. I'm not trying to police the children, but you shouldn't be teaching them that. You shouldn't be holding it out as this, you know, when they're 15 or whatever, they can, whenever you decide as an adult age, they can go out and do what they want, right? But mm-hmm. when they're kids, you don't want to be giving a kid drag queen as, drag queen as an option. Yeah, you know, you encourage their, you encourage whatever they are, but you don't go... I mean, you might say to a little boy, it's just now it's such a toxic environment in terms of all this victimhood and craziness that little boys may come to you and say, I want to be a drag queen. And of course, I wouldn't tell a little boy who wants to be a drag queen. They couldn't be. It's just, do you know what I mean? It's hard to explain, but it's just this culture of it's for children. Well, it's basically not.
2: Why do you think, like, why does some of the trans community, like, take issue with drag culture and drag performers is it because it is like a performance and they're not like like you're not committing to the gender that you are? well that's what they that's what
1: they say okay they say that we're tourists and I buy that I've always been I was accused by women of being a tourist back in the very politically correct feminist 70s you're just a tour in the 80s I didn't do it till the 80s but you're you're accused of you know I'm a woman every day got it, valid. I'm not a woman every day. I know I don't know that experience. On the other hand, I have a right to dress up and be one, but uh, for not be one, but pretend I'm womanish or whatever you want to call it for uh-huh. a day. <laughs> but, um, but the trans community you, says that that's what they're talking about, that we're, you know, privileged tourists. But I will tell you that 60%, I read this in a trans article by a trans person, 60% of all trans people identify as asexual. So it is an asexual movement,
2: Mm. right? And I I, I sense
1: that, or I sense that, and then I I wouldn't have talked about it. I would have talked about sensing it, and then I read the statistic in an article um, by a trans person. It's an asexual movement. Trans people say this has nothing to do with sex. It has to do with gender. I say I have everything to do with sex and being gay has everything to do with sex. And yes, it also has to do with gender. But at some point, they kind of took gender and owned it as if it's not part of issues of uh, sexuality. For, um, I have a dyke friend who says, she really opened up my mind when she said, I'm not a cis woman. Like she's a, 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 a lesbian. So it's like every time she says I'm a lesbian or mentions anything like that, people think she's butch, people think she you know, whatever. They think she dresses in suits. They think she's pushy and masculine. Like, of course, our sexuality is involved with gender. And we don't, I'm not a cisgender male. I've all my life, I've had to deal with being a sissy. Mm-hmm. So, so there, but they've created these categories. Interesting, because they are about no categories, mm-hmm. but a <laughs> yeah. million categories to classify people and judge people. Um, but I would say it's because we're sexual. Okay. And I would say that it's a great way. My my notion is that right now, uh, homophobia is so huge, never changed. So it's a great way. I meet these young men now; they're really effeminate and they have red uh, uh, nail polish and whatever they're doing. And and I ask them if they're gay, which I'm not supposed to do. I know, but I say, "Are you gay?" And they'll go, um, "I'm I'm gender binary." Mm. And, like, that's like, not well, the question. and i be like, well, I mean, I just think, okay, here's, here's more science that if a trans person who's politically correct, not all trans people, because I'm trans people totally agree with me, but the mm-hmm. politically correct trans people will hate it when I say this, but okay, this is very hor- outrageous thing to say, but I agree <laughs> with the scientists who decided that there are only two kinds of male cross-dressing. One of them is, um, drag, which is what gay men do. Uh And the other one is uh, sexual fetish dressing. So in other words, lots of straight men, many more than you think, really get turned on by dressing up like women. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this thing about clothes and dressing up and acting like a woman for men, this doesn't apply to women. Women are a different thing, um, even though trans people don't want to talk that way. They are. <laughs> if, even just because they're culturally different, they're different, right? So, um, but with men, it's those two things. So the idea of a non-sexual male wearing of women's clothing is, for me, suspect. I, I'm just saying that um, I don't think that a lot of men are driven to dress in female clothing or dress like a woman or act like a woman if they're not gay or it's not a sexual fetish. I think that once all this sort of goes, and there's scientific proof of this, but it, I'm not just saying it, but once this all gets down, yes, of course you'd have to be tolerant when you find people, and I'm sure it's a small proportion of the population, which doesn't make it invalid, who are men who just you know, want to act like a girl. It's not sexual, they're not gay just, they, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, or they, whatever level of trans they're on. But um, in actual fact, it has a lot to do with sex. And for gay men, it has everything to do with sex. And if you're asexual, they you don't get it. Sex is stupid. It's an oppression for you, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I personally don't think asexuals should be part of the rainbow. You know, more power to them, but in my... <laughs> view. They don't believe this, but I think there's a lot of support for asexuality in our culture. Like I realize there's all the sexual stuff going on, but um, there's on TV and in movies and stuff. But in actual fact, and this is the end of my lecture on this, Mm -hmm. (laughs) all the pornography, all of the young women, 15 years old, twerking in front of your face, that's actually Puritan. It's actually from a bad place about sex and I'm not coming down on, on Miley. I'm not coming down on porn. Uh Uh, I enjoy porn and Miley, but the point (laughs) is that that those things are actually not, if we were healthy about sex, we probably wouldn't have 15 year old girls twerking and, and porn as much, or we wouldn't be as obsessed with them as we are. Right. We're very oppressed sexually, so to pretend that just because there's all this stuff out there means that we're fine about sex, no, we're screwed up about it like we always were. At least in North America.
0: I remember yeah. like watching an old interview with Frank Zappa, and he he said something similar. Um, he said there's like no sex in American culture, and the interviewer was like, "What are you talking about? There's sex everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everything is mm-hmm. sexualized." He's like, no, "No, no, that's not sex. That's titillation. Yeah, yeah. It's,
1: <laughs> it's not real sex. It's not people having sex in a." relaxed, unjudgmental environment, loving each other's crazy bodies that aren't always perfect. And, you know, all this stuff, that's sex. But sex is about a democracy of of bodies, for instance. Most people have someone who's attracted to them. I don't buy these arguments that, oh, I'm ugly, nobody's attracted to me, right? Like most people, I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions, people who are brutally disfigured Uh might have a problem. (laughs) But most people are actually, you know, the various body types, there's someone to have sex with, yeah, if you're relaxed enough to get into it and there's someone to fall in love with you if you're relaxed enough to get into it. That's what real sex is. But what the media sex is like is crazy and it does come from, yeah, I would say titillation is a good word for it.
0: Why do you think how did this all become so mainstream and popular? Like drag, for example? Like what are your thoughts on RuPaul mainstreaming drag? You know, how how to kind of hold these contradictions of I guess you can't really be rebellious and obscene and, and reject the mainstream, but then be the mainstream, <laughs> but then yeah, yeah, you might so be marginalized. So-
1: Absolutely. Uh, well, that's what capitalism does. Capital, it's about capitalism everything is, but capitalism eats everything. So it eats rebellion and it turns into something that makes money and it, you know, it mitigates it. It, 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 it uh, softens it. But in terms of RuPaul, first of all, I have nothing bad to say about RuPaul. I think he's five, mm-hmm. And brilliant and funny um, and a pioneer, um, very important person. The problem is that um, if you put uh, drag on television, it's not really drag anymore because of what I talked about. It's Mm -hmm. I mean, it is what it is. but it's, um, and I think it's good that they have all those guys talking about their sad upbringings in small towns and how oppressed they were as effeminate boys in small towns. That's important for people to hear. I'm very bored with their drag performances, but I'm bored with pop. So mm-hmm. I just don't, I'm old. I don't get most modern pop singers. I don't know them Why are not they doing barbara streisand are not they doing you know <laughs> <laughs> are not they doing judy garland um but i think part of it is me being old but part of it's also that it's kind of for all their attempted humor they're kind of humorless because drag queens their humor is very clumsy and obvious and unfunny and that's because they can't be really witty like i remember there was a, a gal named pepsi who was a drag queen in um toronto who used she was so wonderful and she was uh East Asian, and she would come on and she would, I can't remember exactly the abuse, but she would kind of abuse uh, v- verbally East Asian boys, in the o- East Asian boys in the audience, like Southeast Asian boys in the audience. And she would say things like, um, I don't know, you're looking for a white sugar daddy or something. And she was talking about a reaction in the Southeast Asian mm-hmm. Toronto community, right?
0: Mm-hmm. She couldn't
1: talk about that on, on RuPaul. That's really funny to me mm-hmm. because it's rooted in the reality of her dealing with her own um, culture in Toronto, the oppression there and making light of it, but still critiquing mm-hmm. it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So, um, but that, you know, so that's what real bar drag is like. I mean, um, yeah, one of the best drag queens in Toronto, um, Donna Rama has been banned from the bars and it won't go into her work, but let's just say it's, it's like performance art. It's really scary work. She's not allowed to perform in the bars anymore because it's too scary. And in the early days, the drag queens got away with that, right? Because nobody cared about drag. It was in bars and it was a particular community. And so when it gets on RuPaul, it just gets completely defanged and completely boring in my view. It's not RuPaul's fault. It's capitalism's fault.
0: All the stuff I see on, uh, RuPaul it's like it's very very rare that they get a laugh out of me it's all kind of just like clickbaity buzzwords and safe and then like you see drag in a bar and it's like offensive and has fangs as you said it's just it's such a big difference I mean even in the bars like I've only been to a couple shows but I wasn't really blown away I was kind of like ah this is it's just really formulaic. and Yeah, like, a lot of it's the same now. Is this really, like, so dangerous? It's kind of like a little playground for straight people um, to go and feel kind of, like, badass. You know, it's like the destination Nation. for a bachelorette party. Like, oh, we're so bad. Like, there's a man in a dress. Like, it's so scandalous. <laughs> and I'm just like not scandalized by that so I was kind of like what what am I missing you know but maybe it just was it used to be different Yeah,
1: I don't think you're missing anything I mean I think it's missing something I think it's missing RuPaul is missing a lot of uh, vitality that you find in the real drag
0: um so you you said a lot of interesting things so I'm trying to like Mm -hmm. pick up on all of them No, it's good. Um, so you've been talking a lot about this kind of clashing between, for example, asexuals and the rest of the, yeah. like now there's this LGBT quote community. And obviously the different groups have different philosophies. Why do you think they did kind of come together um, when they have such different well, well, approaches? Well, I'll tell you
1: why they came together. I'll tell you exactly why, because it's all the fault of gays and lesbians. So gays and lesbians, they're right, the trans community is absolutely right to criticize them for for being exclusionary, they were. They were. They were transphobic. But beyond that, they were genderphobic. So let's put it this way: What happened during the eighties was a sudden um, uh, rise in the popularity of gay masculinity and also lesbian femininity. They all kind of happened at the same time we produced a play called Lesbians Who Wear Lipstick in the 80s. It was scandalous, you know. <laughs> lesbians like to look pretty and wear <laughs> lipstick and a traditional idea of pretty, like, oh, no, right, because it was the 70s of the, you know, large lesbians in plaid shirts. And suddenly you have these, you know, sexy little girls in it with great figures and high heels and lipstick. That's not lesbian, right? And similarly, for the, for the men, you had this thing of, like, um, you know, it's not girly boys, it's uh, guys and and, and construction boots it was the clone look right It was very popular so you had this thing which was a signal of the fact that what was happening was is that we were kind of saying um it's part of assimilation right like we look just like you you don't even know if someone's gay you'll never know (laughs) right now it's true that there are some people that you will never know especially if they decide not to tell you you'll never know that they're gay or a lesbian, but then there are a lot of people like me who people know are gay and lesbian. And so we're a visible minority, right? So we can't really um, assimilate. So we gave up as a group, gays and lesbians, gender as a cause, because we didn't want to be masculine butch dykes. We didn't want to be feminine pansy boys. We wanted to say, we're just like you. We're Ellen DeGeneres, who is kind of a butch dyke, but she's going to pretend she's not. She's going to say, I'm I'm just like you. I'm just like, you know, whatever. I'm kind of a sexless middle-class woman, you know, with short hair, but I'm not a, you know, a butch dyke or something. Right. So similarly, it's like with, um, With gay men, it's about uh, being being not to connect with femininity. So when you do that, when you get when you took gender out of being gay or lesbian, what that time was queer. Then of course there are lots of people who have gender issues who are queer, and that's what I think a lot of trans people are. They're gender, they're people who are queer. They're gay or lesbian, but they have gender issues, and they're happy to be involved in, in a movement which doesn't call itself sexual, right, and is all about gender. But in fact, a lot of them are bisexual or gay or lesbian. Not all of them, of course, but a lot of them are. And it's something they don't want to talk about because they, it, you know, well, we got into a lot of trouble. We ended up kind of killing our own movement, Okay by abandoning the dikes on bikes used to be the front of the gay parade. I think mm-hmm. they still are. Yeah, they but are. the reason why they were was because you wanted to say these masculine women with a hot throbbing piece of metal between their legs are kings. Right. Mm-hmm. And then come the drag queens and they're gorgeous, more gorgeous than your girlfriend. So I, <laughs> as you can see, I love that culture. And when, when queers abandoned it, they opened the door for trans, and the trans needed to come in. Absolutely, they did. I welcome the fact trans is so much more radical in some ways. I just wish they were sexual, but they're so much more radical than gay and lesbians who drive me crazy because they're all married with children and they're going to have horrible lives and get divorced like straight people. It's it's a mess.
0: You've written about how disconnecting gender from sexuality can be problematic. We've talked about it, and you've also written that if you had been a kid growing up now. And someone told you that you could be a girl, you probably would have jumped at that chance. Can you tell us more about that?
1: I, I don't know if I jumped at it, but I would have considered it. You know, you get, you go with, what are your options, right? And at the time, I was supposed to play football. And I was supposed to do all these things I didn't want to do. And I wanted to do ballet. And I didn't know, like, you know what I mean? And now they would have been, well, I didn't, I did enjoy dressing up in girls' clothing, but this was being a little kid dressing up. I didn't even know that later I'd have fun doing it as a performative and a personal thing, but sorry, I'm lost again. Um, <laughs> I think it's because it's been a long time <laughs> since I was able to just let off a little steam in this way, because, you, know, <laughs> you know, lockdown. Yeah. Anyway. Go on.
0: <laughs> um, and we will get to that. Um, yeah. So you, you wrote, like, if you were a kid, you were a kid, you were gender non Right. The option.
1: Sorry. Uh-huh. The option. You're talking about the option. Yeah. So I just think as I'm saying, I don't necessarily think I would want to be um, I would have become a girl. I don't think I'm a trans person. I'm very fond of my genitals, but it's like, um, but on the other hand, it's talking about the options that are offered, right? Like the options that are offered are, would have been, you're either a straight boy or you're a, a girl. I mean, that's what I think is being offered to a lot of children right
0: now. And they can, opt they don't out go, of that.
1: Oh, and by the way, you could be gay um i they they might but uh i don't think they do (laughs) that's the whole point of trans sorry the whole point of trans is that it's not sexual and so you can talk to little children it's not about sex you just want to dress up like a girl it's nothing to do with sex
0: (laughs) and you've talked about how other critical theories have also collided with gay culture so for example me too um as well as trans theory of course um can you talk a little bit about that
1: Well, me too. Um, I just like the French feminist approach to me too. So I'm not against me too, but I wish you would take the French feminist approach because of course, it's very important to confront um, patriarchal exploitation, you know, uh, abuse, all that kind of stuff, power, misuse of power, confront it. And I think the French feminists agree with that. Have you guys heard of about the french feminists what they have to say
0: i don't think so yeah well
1: you see I that's the so, thing then. as you're gonna say something but <laughs> i'm used to teaching a class and going you raise your hand jenna <laughs> then you Hello,
0: your hand.
2: no i was just going to say yeah i i actually haven't heard of them and. In- what, do they have names? <laughs>
1: well, it's significant that you haven't heard of them. It doesn't say anything about you. It says something about the culture. that won't let these ideas out there. But um, I can't remember her name. She's a big French movie star, older woman. Um, anyway, she and various French. And the main women in it are actually, I looked them up. They're French por- female porn writers. Um, some of them are involved with S&M and stuff. And they're women. And they write about uh, sex and porn, uh, pornography mainly, like Story of O type. I think Story of O might be. One of the people, anyway, are these books and real pornography, not that stupid um,
0: internet one that stuff.
1: was so popular. What's it called?
0: I was just gonna say the internet stuff. <laughs>
1: no, I meant that book that was so popular a few years ago with office workers, and it made, oh, they made it
0: made to- oh, Shades, Shades of Grey. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Shades Shades of
1: Grey. It's like Shades Grey. Shades This is really, this is good porn. This is juicy porn. This is porn written by <laughs> French women who know what it's all about. Anyway. So, so these women are part of this um, as are these French movie stars. And they say things like they do not want um, the danger and the thrill of flirtation and all of that to go away. And they are very sexual. And so they say, um, if we live in a culture where men are being, where men are told that they can't flirt or they can't make unwanted or advances. Now, what is that? Then that's bad, essentially. So that means, essentially, that if you're a man and you go, hey, I think you're hot. And she goes, I don't think you're hot. Then you're supposed to go away, according to Me Too, right? Just stop. No longer can it be a game. No longer can it be, no, I don't think you're hot. Are you sure you don't think? Oh, no, that's, that's abuse. That's harassment, right? Mm-hmm. I don't agree with that necessarily. What they say is, is that, um, and I know this sounds revolutionary, but what they say is that uh, we are willing to put up with, and women have been for ages, willing to, they're not saying they're putting up with rape or the abuse, but they're saying we're willing to put up with a little danger and a little bit of discomfort. In other words, dealing with crappy, asshole, ugly guys who are coming on to us in order to have a little fun, right? So in other words, we think it's, uh, we don't want to do away and tell men that they can't flirt with us and even push boundaries sometimes pushing boundaries. What is what it's all about? It's what sex is all about. Sometimes you don't think someone's attractive at first, and then you do after a while. Now, mm-hmm. I realize that maybe it's a fine line or not between that and someone who's actually harassing and abusing you. But what happens with Me Too, they feel, is that you wipe out any possibility for good old-fashioned fun. Yeah,
0: it's mm-hmm. definitely
2: creating this culture yeah, no, Me Too kind of, of, of fear. Me Too has lumped so many things into it right now where like all the lines are blurred and basically everything is incorrect or correct and it's very transactional and I think a lot of the times yeah like women's desires to be like seduced are not included in that or like women are like suppress that being like no no no. I
1: I haven't thought or written about me too for a while but my main thesis about me too is that you solve the whole problem between men and women and it's a tough one because heterosexuality is a mess I'm so glad I'm not heterosexual. (laughs) I don't know what you are. Maybe you're you're dykes or bi or whatever. But so many um, heterosexuals have huge problems. But the way it would be solved is by uh, taking into account women's desire. Okay, that Mm -hmm. solves everything. The big problem is that women are not supposed to be desiring. So. If men were approaching women, knowing first of all that they actually have desires, they actually might kind of be wondering if you're hot or not. Is your dick big enough for her? Uh-huh. Believe it or not, some women actually care about that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Let me tell you, I know they do. So if you, if I'm you, okay with just uh-huh.
2: regular size. <laughs> too big, not whatever. Too small. but
1: whatever. You know what I mean. What I'm saying is, is that. Objectifying males, right? <laughs> Instead of saying men can't objectify women, why can't you say we all objectify, women yeah. objectify, women need to objectify. Now, obviously no, you don't want to treat people in the workplace as objects. But to suggest that women that women and men around in sexual situations shouldn't objectify each other, of course. They should, that's what sex is about. It's about body parts. It's about being attracted to a person's eyes or lips or hair or legs or whatever, half the time. And that's what sex is about. It's not necessarily what love is about, but it's what sex is about. So, and they're not always the same thing. So, so yeah. So I would say if you acknowledge, if you did, if, if culture did some work and acknowledging that women are desiring beings, you'd solve a lot of me too, without these horrible, you know, mm-hmm. things that they do these politically correct edicts they have to make
0: right so what's it like being involved in theater in this day and age um i imagine i mean i don't know it seems like there's been a bit of a decline like it's like the rise of netflix and kind of like fast food tv everyone's Mm -hmm. on their screens so i don't know any thoughts on that
1: Well, I just gave a lecture to my class about the dangers of mass media. It's a theater class and about talking about how this thing we have in front of us, this computer, I compared it to um, Soma, S-O-M-A, the drug that is in Aldous Huxley's um, Brave New World. So he talks about a pill in Brave New World that we could take and uh, there's no side effects and we get, oh, we get the most wonderful for five hours a day, for some reason stipulates five hours, which I think is probably an average time that a young person spends on their computer. Huh. At, in those five hours, you're taken away from life. You're in a wonderful place. You have nothing but pleasure and it's fun. And if you could do that without destroying your mind, like physiologically through drugs, then that would be a great drug. Oh, well, that's what we have. We found it. It's called the computer and capitalism loves it because it makes us buy things, but it doesn't, um, it takes us away from, you uh, you know, rebellion, real thought, reality as we know it. Um, So anyway, so that's the lure of digital technology. And then you have theater. So theater is something very, very different. Theater is about people being alive in a room together in the moment. So yeah, theater is having a tough time right now, especially during COVID. But um, technologies do not replace each other. So if they did, then you when uh, TV came along, you had no radio right um there are various other examples of places where like some people love the radio I'm always amazed they, they're sitting there listening to CBC in Canada in the morning and I'm like what are you doing <laughs> I know now, okay. And in the past I've been on CBC Right And I'll go I heard you on CBC And I'll go But hmm? somebody listens So you know People do So these things
2: That are, audience these Is what our and- podcast Hinges on <laughs> <laughs> Or me <laughs> That audience Is what our podcast Hinges on People Okay enjoying- I don't know What
1: that means But you're trying To get that audience Is what you mean Oh
2: no Just like that Like we depend On people Oh who on those kind of people just want to listen To something yeah. yeah No I'm not
1: trashing them At all I'm being funny Hopefully no, no, But yes, what I'm yes. trying to say What I'm trying to say Is is that yeah, people still like radio. I'm making fun of them, but they do. And so technologies don't replace, um, they just coexist in this uncomfortable sort of mess. Uh, But right now, yes, of course, I would say any sort of medium which requires you to um, be interact, like really, because I don't consider interactive videos interactive. I'm talking about actual contact between people, Mm -hmm. which is what uh, theater, um, you know, that I teach, I I talk, I teach my class about David Schechner, where they had, saw not David Schechner, Richard Schechner, um, who in the 60s had, um, I showed them images of a play they did and uh, called, um, which is a, actually an adaptation of the Eye*, which I mentioned called Dionysus in 69, where the uh, actors would have sex with each other and with the audience, right? So um, that's quite a different um, type of theater than what we have now. But the principle of it is a principle of theater. Like the theater is not necessarily about having sex with the audience, but it's about, that's just kind of a metaphor for what it is. It's about, you know, being with the audience in real time, in real space, in real bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not going to go away forever. It's just that um, I think what's happened with COVID and I, I don't know if you said you wanted to get onto it, but I think we've I think it's been a perfect storm in the sense that whatever is going on, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's a perfect storm for uh, technology, digital technology, uh-huh. right? In other words, it's set up, it's there and now for whatever reason, what has happened has dropped us into it. So um that's what's going on. So I don't think that's but I can see how screwed up people are in my small contacts with people. I can see how desperate they are for human contact. Mm-hmm. It's something people need, right? That's what theater is.
0: Yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Um I mean, you've written about being a gay man during the AIDS crisis and then you've kind of drawn some parallels between that and what's happening right now. This is another major public health crisis. So can you tell us all of the the different thoughts you've had about that? Cause I think they're really interesting.
1: Well, I mean, nobody really wants to hear me talk about COVID. um, because (laughs) I just call myself a COVID radical. I mean, I have a a, a small circle of friends who we are COVID radicals, meaning that we just in the quietness of our homes, uh, we'll talk about um, how we think this is all just a, a, a messy pile of, you know, what, but, um, yeah, no, I, I mean, basically my belief is is that um, I'm not denying that people die and that people die every day. I'm not denying that a whole lot of older people, basically above 70 or 80, um, are dying. And I'm not sure whether they're dying in greater numbers, but we're certainly paying a lot more attention to them than we normally do. But um, the general idea I get from listening to people like the Great Barrington, um, what's it called? Oh, boy.
0: The Great There's Barrington De- Declaration, or something declaration,
1: like that. Declaration. Thank you. listening to the Great Barrington Declaration, um, and other scientists who oppose this, like Ian Ionite, he's called. He's a someone who just came out two weeks ago. They're all challenging. For instance, COVID testing and saying all COVID does is it tells you, test does is tell you that you have the virus in your system. It doesn't tell you you can transmit it. It doesn't tell you that you're infectious. And any infectious disease specialist knows this. But I knew this intuitively, like all these people are being tested. They're all positive. Yeah. So does that mean that they're infecting people with a killer disease? No, not necessarily. I would say broadly the principle of if no one ever went out of the house, then probably older people in um, old folks homes would not die as much maybe that might be true (laughs) but to me and I'm not cursing old people in in, you know senior citizens but I think that I'm a senior citizen but I think that um, older people in old folks homes do die and we're stopping all of culture for this Now you can say well there's another group yeah there is it's called people of color who aren't don't have proper medical health care, usually. Um, people who our um, are, 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 are health is worse because they're a neglected and a marginalized population, like Hispanics and people, Black people, people of color. That's a problem. We should be taking care of that. We should be dealing with that. They're not dealing with it. Mm-hmm. They're not dealing with senior citizens' homes. I know that in Ontario, it's exactly the horrible, corrupt place to put grandma or grandpa as it was Uh, before COVID and I've done nothing as I can see to change it. I know that our culture is never going to help marginalize people. We saw the murders in the States. We saw the cops killing black men, nothing's gonna change. So culture is not gonna do anything about that. So the way to deal with this um, is to lock us all up in our houses, no, uh, but that's what they're doing. So anyway, as you can see, I'm very skeptical. Um, If you look at the actual death rates, Um, From COVID, um, they're uh, very low um, in terms of um, the flu or something, or certainly nothing, even like the Spanish flu or anything. You're hearing so much hyperbole. So my big question is... why? And I think I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, as I say, who thinks that this was made, even though this is going to make digital technology, it's going to be mega, it's going to make mega corporations a huge amount of money. And it's going to make family businesses close. Okay, we all know that now. Mm-hmm. So that could be a conspiracy. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's just a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. But I think the other aspect of the perfect storm, which is very important, is that we live in a victim culture. So we live in a culture now, it started with, um, the um, woke movement, which I spoke out against. Um, not the initial woke movement. I understood that back in the 30s, when these were black people who were rebelling against, um, basically they were talking about their own civil rights, and their own oppression. I'm not objecting to that. Mm-hmm. I'm objecting to what happened in the 90s, which is it turned into a, a phrase, woke, to represent kind of general political awareness and used by trans people. So the woke movement is very victim politics, right? So, and it means that we have a tendency now to rate our victimization intersectionality oh, yeah. so i object oh, to intersectionality <laughs> as a philosophy of intersectionality you know what Sigh. that is
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's when we
1: go well all of us yeah yeah all of us are are intersectional oppressions right mm-hmm. so i'm a gay man mm-hmm. i only have one oppression to talk about i'm gay because i'm white and i'm male oh i have another one now kind of i'm old so i'm old <laughs> and i'm gay so those are two things where I get oppressed, right? But I'm also incredibly white (laughs) Uh and and, and middle class. Um, Is there another, oh, I'm male. Yeah, so there's three hitting me in the face, right? So because of those three things, um, we look at, we measure, balance everybody. You'd all have to tell me what your oppressions are. We talk about who's the most oppressed. I would then have to probably stop talking because, you know, I get to talk all the time. Everybody, well, it's not true actually, but it's true that I have privilege. I don't deny that, but I'm supposed to therefore not talk anymore because it's time for other people to talk. So this is, but it isn't only about that. It's about this notion that my experience isn't very valuable because I'm not very, I'm not as oppressed as you. So anything I talk about to you I'm a novelist. I write plays, all that. Who cares what I have to say anymore? Because I, I'm so privileged. I, my, you know, my, my oppressions are only two. My, you know, my um, privilege is three or four. I can never remember. So I'm, I'm just, I should just shut the F up, you know, the F up. So um, that's, so if you get in, so how does it have to do with COVID? It has to do with the fact that, you will created this environment where all the, oh, this is where I'd say the, the kind of motto of the trans movement before COVID was um, uh, you're killing us. You're killing black trans women. Now it's horrible when people murder black trans women, the actual figures on murders of black trans women in North America are not very high, right? Mm-hmm. And in mm-hmm. fact, it's important to talk about trans rights and to be, uh, to be um, sympathetic and more than tolerant to understand that people come in all shapes and colors and sexualities and genders. But to say you are killing us every day about trans- black trans women is in fact playing a victim card, which is actually not related to reality, right? Um, and that's what I'm saying is now, what is the motto for, for COVID? You're killing us. When I, I wrote an article about when I went to a strip club. I'm killing grandma when I go to a strip club, right? So it becomes this thing. How do you fight that? Mm-hmm. How am I going to, in all good conscience, go to a strip club because of my silly sexual gay needs when grandma might die because of it? So <laughs> you set up this kind of victim politics where... I don't even know whether we should. I, in one of my blogs, I just said, I think I should go crawl in a hole and die. Mm-hmm. I think we should all just hide because it's safer that way. We won't give anybody any illnesses, right? And um, I honestly think that um, we all know that it's a fact that most young, healthy people, and that means under 70, have very little danger of dying of COVID. And we all get sick,
2: yeah, right? There's yeah. been so much social shaming. So much. so much social shaming and like doing things or isolating the exact way that they are. They think they're like morally superior oh and God. that they're like people for the greater good of society. And like, you have never cared about anyone,
0: but like outside of this, like you don't care. That yeah. You and know. you like see your friends and that apparently takes up so much space and everyone yeah, hates that's you. That's very important.
1: You have never cared. Why are you suddenly caught I will quote, or do give you a quote from Adorno, who's my favorite Aesthetic uh, philosopher, Adorno and Adorno said about Nazis, that some of the greatest um, and I just gave the quote to my class today, but some of the greatest atrocities were committed with a moral veneer. I think that's the actual quote. And so what he's saying is that when they were doing in, in, it's very important to remember that in Nazi Germany, they were running around going, this is for the nation. This is for the greater good. This is for your fellow man. This is because you love your, your, your country and the people in it. And you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about more important things. So that doesn't mean that unselfishness itself is a bad thing, but it means that you have to recognize that the greatest atrocities are committed in the name of that, right? So when people come at you wagging their fingers and there's nothing more appealing than looking down on someone and disapproving them, it is so sexy it is so self aggrandizing. It's so satisfying. People from time immemorial. It's nothing new. We've always loved it. And I will say about North America, we are Puritans. Mm-hmm. It, we were settled by the Puritans. They're a toxic group of people. I come from New England. I know what that's like. The Shakers. Do you know about the Shakers? Yeah. The Shakers did not have sex. They banned sex, so they died out. Unfortunately, there.
0: But anyway, <laughs>
1: they didn't have sex. They also invented the hammer, okay, and I think the rocking chair or something. But
0: That doesn't sound so good.
1: Well, but all yeah, not together. They weren't intimately really connected. But the idea is, is that those things they had great creativity, and the reason they were called shakers because they get together once a month and shake like the da- means all their I hesitate to think what those must have been like they weren't allowed to touch each other the men and the women but they would kind of you know do these shaking dances and they were called shakers that's the kind of demented anti-human philosophy that lies at the basis of you know all of Quakers all I Amer- now I'm not yeah, well, I'm generally anti-religion. So please don't get mad at me for choosing Quakers and Shakers. But it's like, <laughs> I, I just don't like religion, period. But it, this Puritan religion is the worst. Mm-hmm. And it's for what I come from. I'm a Protestant. I mean, I'm, my parents were Puritans, but it infected my whole background in New England. I know what it's like to be, like my grandmother was a daughter of the American Revolution. They were on the, you know, came off the Mayflower. So I know those people and they're horrible people.
0: <laughs> That's another thing It's like like I see a parallel here where it's like everyone thinks we're in this like highly sexual culture, but it's not it's mm-hmm. a total illusion, and then yeah. uh, everyone thinks that we're in this like um moral culture as well, like we're oh things have never oh, been yeah. better they love, it. They um, love it but really i i I struggle to see that and, and same with religion, like um never has there been so few people. Um, who are into quote religion but what has happened is just this replacement religion which is it's the same it's the exact same like psychological impulse to kind of like shame and scold and judge it's just taking a completely different form and at least like I I don't know with religion it was kind of like the devil you know for me Um, and like this stuff is just such a different beast. Well I would say
1: On the side of religion, I would say religion, in my view, first of all, should be private. I Mm. I believe that religion, I'm hoping someone will quote me on this someday, because I think it's very witty.
2: (laughs) We will quote you. (laughs) Religion
1: should be private and sex should be public.
2: And unfortunately, Mm.
1: it's the other way around in our culture, right? Sex is private and religion is public. Religion should be your relationship with the spirit. I don't care if it's God or many gods or whatever. But it should be private. It should be you. People should, I think, I consider myself spiritual. I think it's probably important for people to have spiritual relationship with whatever their God is. But um, this moral aspect of it, where everybody gets around and writes articles and condemns people and burns them at the stake or does whatever they do, pulls their tongue out or whatever they do, that's bad stuff. That's the Inquisition. That's mm. the other dark side of, of religion where we judge other people and take great relish in it. Very dangerous, right?
0: Sarah Silverman actually called it all righteousness porn, which I think is a good it term is. for it's it. It's absolutely
1: righteousness porn. People are wanking off at home. Sarah <laughs> Silverman is so smart. They're 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 wanking off at home. Who can these, I
2: cancel next? Oh. Like <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't
1: do social media, so I was so surprised during the, the first lockdown people were talking to me about people i knew going online and saying oh i saw so and so out today they weren't wearing a mask or they were whatever and it's like oh the people went on the rampage
0: yeah it's it's pretty scary and can you connect the dots with sorry the aids crisis cuz you had some interesting thoughts there cuz you're like hey i've lived through something really terrifying and like. Yeah, I think it's
1: pretty interesting that nobody seems very interested in talking about the relationship between AIDS and COVID, because there's a huge relationship. I would say it went AIDS, smoking, COVID. So in terms of the general perception, the sort of general acceptance of this notion of AIDS was the first time in recent times, because this is something that comes up all through history, but it's the first time in recently that we've begun to think about the greater good versus the individual good in a very immediate fashion. So, so when AIDS came up, it was suddenly like, well, we thought it was okay to be gay, because you could just, it was just about you. And if you want to go be immoral and perhaps kill yourself or whatever it is that, you know, commit suicide the way fags do, you go ahead, it's just hurting you. But then AIDS came along and suddenly became, well, you could be hurting a lot of people, by what you're doing. And people began to say the same thing to me then as they're saying now and I want to sock them in the jaw. if a person tells me once more to be safe, you know jump in a lake, I'll <laughs> decide whether or not I'm going to be safe, right? But it's like but, be, but no, it's up to those people to decide because now your actions are thought to have greater consequences. So that's why I'm with AIDS. Now I'm not denying that AIDS was a sexually transmitted disease, but what happened was is that um, and it's very different than COVID. But the the moralism around it and the finger waving, of course, was unbelievable. Like people weren't totally enjoying condemning us in exactly the same way as they're enjoying you know, as soon as I heard about super spreaders and then all this talk about young people like demonizing young people for yeah. going to parties, this is their lives. They're only young once. It's going to be gone. Let me tell you, I'm an old man. You don't want that to be gone. And I know I probably feel really bad because I spent my whole adolescence being in the closet. So I know what it's like not to have an adolescence mm-hmm. that's a real adolescence. And I really worry about these kids right now. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of similarities in terms of the moralism and the attitude. And, and it happened with smoking too, right? When, when um, um, secondhand smoke came along, it was all about, uh, right? It was like, you could smoke. You're killing yourself, but go ahead. And it became, oh, oh, oh. Your second secondhand smoke will put someone else in danger. Oh, so suddenly you're allowed to tell somebody to stop smoking because they're, you know, they're in danger. You're allowed, you put warnings on packs. You do all this crazy stuff. And we all know smokers, as they say, would buy a pack that said, had a skull and crossbone called brand name death. In fact, they might sell very, very well, right? <laughs> but in, in, yet yeah, they, they put, so anyway, yes, I think there's lots of connect. I think it all has to do with moralism. And well, Susan Sontag said it all. She wrote this wonderful book called Illness as Metaphor, and then she wrote AIDS as Metaphor. And she talked about the fact that she was mad because <laughs> angry, because as a cancer patient, it's kind of I ironic sadly but she was angry because she was told that her anger was what caused her to get cancer like she said I would go in for my diagnosis and they'd say Well, if you weren't such an angry person perhaps you wouldn't have cancer and she'd be like could I not just have cancer does it have to be because of my anger right (laughs) and then she talked about all the metaphors involved with cancer and how it's talked as a war and you're going to battle Uh and she's like all this is not about just it should be about science and biology and facts and math right Mm -hmm. so um anyway illness as metaphor is susan sontag's idea and it's out there and it's what's happening now and it's not a surprise and i kind of started with aids i'm not saying it didn't have because syphilis was a metaphor right Mm. and they all were metaphors syphilis was a sign of all sorts of things that other than illness it was about your depravity as a person tuberculosis Mm -hmm. was considered to be um a disease of the weak and artistic and women, I guess. But sort of, you know, artistic men and, and weak women and weak people got tuberculosis and sensitive people got it, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, So it's all, religion is always, sorry, disease is always has metaphors attached and I agree with Sontag that it shouldn't.
0: Uh, wh- what do you, is there any like kind of turning back? Because it seems like what I'm seeing, the pattern I'm seeing is that a lot of the values that are being lost, like, for example sexuality or um human touch when it comes to covid like um you know being able to live your youth these are very hard to kind of like argue for when it comes to you know it's it's that versus like yeah death for, for worst case yeah. scenario or even with me too it's like oh you want to flirt you want to like you like the game of seduction well how could you possibly prioritize that over you know something like rape or exactly. sexual assault And it just, it's really hard to like kind of articulate these deeper human values. And it just seems like, I guess, because we live in a culture that doesn't, that we don't have a sense of why they're important intrinsically.
1: Yeah, there, I think there, I think that there is, again, it's all about perfect stormism. So there's a lot, I think the hypocrisy of Western culture has come home to roost. Like you can't really, you can't be an anti-human culture and function and it will destroy itself. Because people, if we don't watch out, in the sense that no one wants to live in a culture where you don't have human values and where humanity and touching and love and sex and and, um, all of these things are not prioritized, right? Um, So, yeah, I mean, I'm a bit more optimistic than you because I'm old enough to see, have so many things changed during my lifetime, like I was brought up in the 50s. And it was incredibly oppressive time. And then suddenly the sixties appeared. And suddenly, you know, people are having sex in the streets and there's hippies and there's all this stuff. Then there's AIDS and then there's the eighties. And then there's um um it's kind of gotten worse. That's why I think it's been quite a long time. It's been like I would say from the eighties on, it's been pretty bad in terms of what's happened culturally, um, I think. But um that's forty years, so <laughs> <laughs> maybe. But I think, that, look at the 20s after World War One. I. I mean, the 20s was this incredible explosion, explosion of art and irreverence, sexuality, um, and then it all kind of went away, but it was there for a while. Um, people are human, you know? They have to have sex, they have to do drugs, they have to get drunk, they have to do things that are bad, you know? They have to flirt, they have to cross boundaries. That's the way human beings are. And, people won't, it won't last forever. And I I know that's all you've heard about COVID. So you don't really want to hear that, but (laughs) I'm more optimistic than you, but I do understand what you're saying, Sonia. Like I do understand that Mm -hmm. it is uh, not easy and Mm -hmm. it's scary where we are right now.
0: I just have two more questions. Um, Mm -hmm. So the second last one is about buddies in bad times Mm -hmm. because you started that theater Um, and then you left. So can you tell us about starting it and then why you left?
1: Well, I mean, I I started it in 1979 when I was in the closet and um, I wanted to do theater and uh, subconsciously, I guess I wanted to do gay theater, but I didn't really know it. And uh, that was way back in 1979. And then in about 1981, I came out and then I started to do gay plays and then I joined up with Sue Golding, who's now Johnny Golding, who is the president of the company when I was artistic director. And she helped me to feel really comfortable with myself sort of philosophically, because she's a philosopher. And um, also to open up to the dyke community, the lesbian community. So that was sort of what happened with Buddies. And then in 1997, um, I left because I, um, it was a lot of reasons, sort of what I talked about. I felt that everyone was assimilating and the kind of drag sexual experimental even nature of the company, the avant-garde nature. Like I had, I had arts councils asking us to produce Angels in America. And I said, well, this is an American play. We only do Canadian plays. So what's that about? This is an American play. And it's, I think, a middle-class, uh, not particularly well-written um AIDS play. And it has all sorts of narrow, constrictive views about being gay and AIDS. And I don't think we should produce it. And, you know, I got castigated for that. And at that point, I realized that, you know, when I was trying to do the experimental work I was doing, not just my own work, but other people's, it it just wasn't going to happen anymore. So um, I left the company, and there were lots of other factors, but that was definitely part of it. And I felt like a lot of older gay men didn't like me because I was not getting married and all that. So I left and then I began my career as a, a professor and then and a writer. Um, then outside of that, what happened was, is that a couple of years ago, I wrote this article um, about called, I'm afraid of woke people. Um, and it was because I, I read this book by, um, ugh, her name is escaping me, can you remind me of her name? Um, anyway, she's a, a prominent trans writer. And I wrote a critique of her book um, in "I'm Afraid of Woke People," and um, this explosion happened at Buddies, where uh, Evelyn Perry, the artistic director, was getting a lot of social media pressure that I was horrible for writing this article. I had nothing to do with Buddies at that. Yes, I, I rented the space to do a play there once a year. Um, And I was still known as the ex artistic director and I had lots of friends there. And I, you know, I was still part of it in that way, but I didn't run the company or anything, but I just wrote this article that Evelyn disapproved of, but it wasn't only Evelyn was all social media disapproved of it. And, um, So Evelyn wrote me an email saying, I don't like your article. I wish I hadn't written it. (laughs) And I said, well, just say that I'm stupid and I wrote a horrible article and, you know, publicly denounce me. I don't Mm -hmm. care. I mean, disagree. Don't denounce. Just disagree with me. Mm -hmm. I'm not the artistic director. It's your company. Do what you want. Mm -hmm. Why does it matter that you don't like my article? And to keep it in context, I did have a reading of one of my plays coming up there. And her argument was, you shouldn't have written this article before you had a reading coming up and it's all your fault you did it to cause trouble and to well it's very complicated but I didn't do it to cause trouble that's for sure I, I'd for, kind of forgotten about the reading when I wrote this piece because I'm always writing controversial pieces right mm-hmm. anyway so she got very angry about it and then when I said I told her I wasn't going to withdraw my article, and then she said she sent me an email saying, "Well, we're canceling the reading of your play, which was what was supposed to happen for the 40th anniversary. It was supposed to be a reading of my play, Drag Queens in Outer Space." And then they didn't do the reading; they canceled it. And then um, then there was a a big um, know, what's it called the long table, which is like a group meeting with all these uh, all these queers and. People of color, queers of color, BIPOC people sitting around talking about how horrible I was. That's what ostensibly it was supposed to be. I was invited, but of course I didn't go. But I did watch it online. <laughs> and um, it wasn't really about me, which was interesting, you know, my vanity down the drain. It was, mm-hmm. it was kind of about me, but they didn't talk about me. Basically, it was a lot of people crying and talking. It's online. You can view it um, because I wrote an article about it. But it's all these people going online talking about how horrible their lives were and how everyone's mean to them. And no doubt they are mean to them and no doubt their lives are horrible, but it was this kind of nurturing of victimhood. um, And I was the cause of it because I'd written an article critical of a trans artist of color um, because i disagreed and and the reason why I disagreed with oh, why, can't, why can't i can 't remember her name the reason why I disagreed with her work was that she was um, i thought she was homophobic in much the same way as I talked about right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some trans politics can be homophobic, so she spent a lot of time in her article talking about i uh, 'm sorry in her book it 's called i 'm afraid of men is her book. Um, and she said, she, she talked about how horrible the gay community was. So, of course, that pissed me off. And I was writing in, defen- and I was writing in defense of drag queens. Uh, sorry, in, yeah, in, in defense of drag queens. That was what my blog was about. But I was really writing in the name of a feminine gay man. Anyway. Oh,
2: it's Vivek so. Shraya.
1: Vivek Shraya, thank Shraya. you. Vivek Shraya, I'm afraid of men. After all of that happened, yes, I was, uh, I don't know what actually happened to me other than the fact that I was denounced for about a year in the theater community and um, um and i was denounced on social media like crazy but i don't I, I don't know what to tell you about what happened because i don't consider consider social media to be a reality because mm-hmm. it to be a fantasy world that people are living in that they should stop living in right okay. so i just ignored it um and i'm a writer and i continue writing and i've i've had i'm having a book published this year and a book published Next year, and I, I still want to write. That's all that matters to me. And I'd probably write even if no one was publishing my books because you can't stop me from <laughs> writing, things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that's what happened. And so I, I, se- oh, I severed, excuse me, I severed ties with buddies. So that was the final thing. That's what you're speaking of. Mm-hmm. I did a public thing that was published in the paper where I said, I'm no longer associated with buddies but that was because i was afraid of them (laughs) they were tearing the hell out of me like it was like if
0: i can't
1: can't speak anymore as a writer without being denounced and hate mail and people demonizing me then you know and being encouraged by buddies then i'm not going to be associated with buddies because for some reason they obviously felt they were still responsible for me
2: the which just is flattering. super ironic with the whole situation like buddies <laughs> in bad times oh, yeah, they buddies
1: were not bad buddy. Times.
2: <laughs> just sounds like a monarchy
1: no, you're not like off kidding. with your head
2: <laughs> no you're not kidding
1: it's, it well they thought people thought it was ironic that i wrote a I wrote a bloody article called i'm afraid of woke people and then <laughs> i should well have been afraid of woke yeah. people yeah. So when yeah. i wrote that article they basically pillared me canceled me and Tried to cut my you know what's off like they definitely <laughs> did that.
0: Yeah, they really like, proved your so, point. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I over was and like, over self, again. <laughs> yeah, like they are scary people. Like they'll 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 they get angry, and you don't want to be standing in their way. I mean, I compared it to the witch hunts in an article I wrote for Quillette. Quillette, I compared it to the 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 um, psychology of woke,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the the Salem witch hunts, because what's very similar is that one of the modern uh theorists who writes about the the most recent theorists writing about the salem witch hunt says that it's not well known but the but now they've discovered by doing some statistical work that the people who were pressing or um persecuting the witches in salem were people from um the older culture, and what was happening was there was a merchant culture, and then there was this older uh, agricultural culture, and the merchant culture was coming in, and it was all that old culture, which was actually dying out, were threatened by this other group. I I think I got it right. Anyway, the important thing is that it was a group of people who who were powerless at that time, and the only way to gain power was to become morally Mm finger-waving. So a lot of the people who they could now kind of um, wave their fingers at and disapprove of and and they're morally their witches and you have to kill them were people who they had actually an economic oppression by. Now, if you look at the woke situation, I'm considered to be a rich old professor with all this privilege and um, people want my job, right? And, and people want the jobs of a lot of people like me. And on the one hand, you know, it's, it is very important that these jobs that a job, like I have not be held by only a, well, I'm gay. So I think there's some representation there, but they shouldn't certainly be by white people or by men or whatever. So um, that's a very, very valid, but to use a movement to actually for your own economic purposes, which is kind of felt like, I feel like that's sort of what's happening Mm -hmm. now for a lot of these. and I have sympathy for these kids. I go, Look at the world, climate change, now COVID, the economic mess, you know, I mean, and, and, and how do you, uh, mega corporations, all this stuff, how are you to get ahead in this horrible, all this populism and, and um, racial prejudice, how, what a horrible world to be in. But I would also say that the way to um, deal with that problem is to cancel people right? So that to me is, is problematic. But that's sort of, that was an attempt made on me. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what somebody said about me. Actually, when we moved into Buddies at um, 12 Alexander many years ago, the theater on 12 Alexander Street in Toronto, and we fought tooth and nail with a bunch of other people who were trying to get it, but we got it. And the guy who lost out in the building said about me, you know what's dangerous about Sky Gilbert? He's got nothing to lose. I thought that was such a funny thing to say because it's such an insult, right? You know, he's a drag queen. He, he's a slut. He's he just says it all out because he's got nothing to lose. Like he, no one's got any you know secrets. Good luck revealing secrets about me. Uh, there I've challenged people, but it's like, I'm, just what I am. I'm a drag queen and a slut. I've told you all of the important to know because I don't really want much in life. I just want to be able to do my work and be a drag queen slut, right? Mm-hmm. But <laughs> so that makes me really dangerous, right? Because yeah. I don't really want anything else. I don't want position. I don't want power. I don't want any of that stuff, right? I don't want money. You know, I don't really want any of that stuff. I want to survive, yes, but I want so you know. Anyway, that's my story. But that's so have the right. irony because
0: the people who kind of want those things, um, they have to conform. And they do so in these like ways that might appear rebellious to an outsider, but it's all it's it's all pretty status quo. And then that system rewards those kinds of people. So then you just get shit art. Like you just get shit art. You get shit um, scholarly well, work right. because it's all just like the same thing over and over again. No, and it's then- all the
1: same thing over and over again because you get uh, politically correct, politi- politically approved of moralism. That's what you get in academia. That's what you get in art. And I, I just. I mean, I have to tell you that when I made, I've been writing gay plays for ages. I'm really proud of the fact that a lot of gay people would come up to me and say, why do you hate gay people so much? (laughs) Why are you mean about gay people? And it would be like, well, because I'm not writing raw, raw gay plays. Gay men are screwed up. <laughs> gay culture is screwed up. It's a big mess, right? Like, I don't think they're any better than straight people. I'm not recommending it <gasps> instead of, you know, I do think heterosexuals are a mess. But, I, you know, I'm not recommending it, right? It's like, it's not about that. It's about just writing about what I know. But when you re- go to a play and it's telling you, you know, it's preaching at you about some, you some know, way of life that you should be living or morals that you should have. It's just sleepy time. And they're all like that now.
0: My last question is kind of going back to something that you've been talking about a while. And I just wanted to make sure we had time for it because I think it's an interesting point. And it kind of mm-hmm. underpins your whole thesis with um, how uh, gay rights or the gay movement was very focused on assimilating. And it was just kind of assumed yeah. that that would be the best for gay people. Yes. And I think that, the fact that it's not it would be very counterintuitive to a lot of listeners and even I'm not sure if I fully agree so can you speak more to it because I think it's a really interesting idea I'm not
1: saying that it's not important to have gay marriage no of course what I'm, what I'm or I'm not saying that we should be persecuted or not get jobs or be fired of because course. we're gay no that's really important but it's one thing to change legislation this is kind of a quote from Noel Coward actually it's one thing to change people's to change legislation. It's another thing to change people's hearts. And that's a really difficult issue, which isn't going to be solved in a day. But I want to make sure I answer your question because I'm getting off on, on 20 tangents here. So <laughs> you, you want to say, just say it once more.
0: Um, assimilationism, like even culturally. Just- why, isn't
1: it, why isn't assimilation good? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Then I'll say this because the value middle class values are, are bad values. Mm. I don't agree with them. Okay. I think that um, that's the thing about COVID. COVID isn't, here I go again, but COVID is a (laughs) middle-class disease. It's it's a disease that only middle-class people understand. Rich people and poor people will ignore it uh, because rich people are too rich to have to deal with any of this stuff. And uh, uh, poor people have a lot more on their mind than they do this silly coughing thing that will probably not make you know a huge number of them die so what they're what they're they're just and they're digital they can't ignore it they got too much they got to eat they got to live they got to n- not be or be on drugs so they got to deal with all the things that people with no money have to deal with right mm-hmm. so um so I don't I'm trying to tell you why I don't like um middle class values middle class values are ignore death pretend death doesn't exist which is very revealing in terms of that. Um, lie. Don't 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 make a lot of money. Um, obey the what the police say. Go to church. These are middle class values. I think they're horrible values. I think that yes, of course, we want people. But okay, let me tell you this: even the prosperity that is middle class is actually, and I know I speak as a middle class person, right? But is not actually does not actually make you happy. Okay. People, it's been proven, only really need certain things. They need food, they need shelter, they need love, but and sex. <laughs> but they don't need to be rich or affluent, right? But middle class culture, to be happy, It actually, they might get less happy when they beget, become more affluent. Mm-hmm. But that's about affluence, it's not about assimilation. I just, you get the idea that I don't like the values of middle class <laughs> yeah, culture? Yeah. Like, I don't like assimilation, I don't. I don't want to be like straight people. I don't, I don't get what the appeal is. I think my culture is much more interesting. We have camp. We have gender fluidity. This is originally what queer was. Camp, gender fluidity, and sexual experimentation, promiscuity, open relationships, all that stuff. And, uh, S&M kink. Sorry, I think I left one out. Yeah. So all those four things are what we have to offer. Um, and they're all really important and really human, right? And, um, they're rejected by a lot of middle-class culture. And I think they, so why would you want to, we have all sorts of things to offer in our own culture. Why would we want to assume someone else's?
2: Mm -hmm. Right.
0: Very well said. Um, I just wanted to say, uh, I really like your website (laughs) when I was reading your blogs and, uh, like, I like the aesthetic of your website and I like how it's like stream of consciousness, everything that you write. Well,
1: lately, I've just gone into this whole thing. I have some of it's probably garbage. I haven't even looked at those. I wrote 140 COVID blogs, like one every Whoa. day, the first lockdown. They're all like reviews of old movies and rants and personal confessions, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I just, I, I started this other form because I just thought for myself, because I thought, this is too crazy. I can't just write an essay or something. I've got to mm-hmm. like just let it all out. So mm-hmm. I would experiment with that. We'll see what happens
0: with it. <laughs> well, I like it. Um. So thank you so much. Yeah. So really appreciate it. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Best of luck in the.
1: Thank you so much. Awesome. I had a, a whole lot of fun. <laughs>
0: thank you. Thank you. Every day.